If you listen to this podcast and follow what we do at Troutbitten, then you're a thoughtful angler, and you don't accept the status quo simply because that's how it's always been done. Squall of Fishing designs and creates fly fishing apparel with this same philosophy. Squalla was started by a group of lifelong fly anglers who spent their careers working for some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry, and they understood that essential fly fishing apparel like waders, jackets, sun gear, and insulation could simply be better. So now, Squalla makes gear for us, the like-minded few, serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. Check them out at squallafishing.com. Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah, Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. It's about trout. Wild trout. This is Trout Bitten. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Dominic Swintoski, the owner of Trout Bitten and author of TroutBitten.com. I'm here with my friend Austin Dando again to break down the fifth part of this Trout Bitten series on the nine essential skills for tight line and uranymphing. Our topic is finding contact. So we're halfway through this second season of the Trout Bitten Podcast now, and I want to quickly say thank you to everyone out there. Thanks for your kind words and enthusiasm. And thank you to our sponsors as well. I was pretty sure that this series format would work with tightly packed tactical episodes, but it was a significant deviation from what we did in season one, so I wasn't totally sure. Your downloads, comments, and again, enthusiasm, though, confirmed my belief. Anglers love learning. So this skills series format is something we'll keep in the mix for the future. Also, here are a few of the best ways to keep this Trout Bitten project going. First, leave a comment and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We need it, because that rating and popularity are a key metric for our advertisers. Second, support our sponsors. Make a purchase. Use those discount codes and tell them thank you for supporting Troutbitten. Finally, you can find the yellow donate button below every Troutbitten article and before the comments section. There you can contribute directly and keep this Troutbitten project funded. Thank you again, my friends. So somebody asked me, why are there nine skills? Why nine and not a dozen? Why not six skills? Well, because that's the way I see it, I guess. It's just how I think about it. And it's how I've come to teach the tactics of nymphing with a long leader and available contact. There are nine. And while we talk about these being the fundamental skills and the building blocks for everything else, well, you've heard by now from the previous episodes, these basic skills aren't really so basic. Dialing in a tuck cast is not easy. 
Sticking the landing takes seasons of attention. There are multiple ways to recover slack, and all of them are necessary. Even the angles that we fish and the way we approach the water for our next cast are skills to take seriously. So in these podcast episodes, we're taking things apart, sort of examining them closely and then putting them back in place in series and into our arsenal of tactics that give us more control over the flies. To anglers like me, like Austin, and like you, this is where true satisfaction happens on the water. It's in knowing that we fished well, that we fished hard, and that we learned something during our time out there. Tightline and Euronymphing is a tactic built for refinement, and there's nothing more enjoyable than being on an educational journey and seeing improvement. Add in that we fish for trout in some of the most amazing places on earth, and you have a very addictive formula. What do you like best about all this stuff, Austin? You mentioned earlier, anglers like learning. Yeah. You know? And every time I think I, I have a handle on something or I've got a pretty good idea about how something works, I turn over a new rock and realize, oh, there's a whole lot more I didn't realize. Mm. And I love that sensation of realizing, oh, there's this whole other thing I never thought of or, you know, continual learning and improvement. Um, that's some of the stuff I love the best or I've grown to love the best. Mm-hmm. Um, when I maybe started first out fishing in general, it's just fun to catch fish and that was pretty much all I was looking to do. But as I've grown as an angler, maybe as a, as a person, I've grown to enjoy the learning and the struggle of learning. I love, well, specifically these tactics that we're fishing, how much control we have over the outcome, you know? Yeah. The ways I grew up fishing, I was hoping a lot and not fishing, you know? Right. And that's yeah. what, I've said this before, but that's what my uncle used to say. Well, keep fishing. They might start hitting. Right. Well, now on slow days, at slow times, I feel like there's something I can do especially with these rigs, it'll turn those fish on. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's what we're trying to learn, you know? All right, so maybe this seems strange, but we're moving into the fifth skill now, and we still haven't drifted the flies. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) we haven't really fished them yet, right? Or taken them past any trout. So tonight's topic, finding contact, isn't about drifting the flies either. (laughs) And neither neither is the sixth skill, uh, locating the strike zone. In the seventh episode, we'll finally get to the skill that anglers seem to focus on the most. I call it guiding the flies, and that's when we'll look at how to drift the flies and take those nymphs to the fish. Hey now. Hey now. (laughs) But like I said, if you ask around, read articles and watch videos and stuff, a lot of the focus on these nymphing tactics is centered on how we drift them. But there's not much attention paid to what happens first. So in this set of nine skills, we are learning that all of the setup, all of the things that come before we drift the flies is what allows us to get natural, pure, attractive dead drifts on the fly in the first place. We tuck cast, we stick the landing, begin to recover the slack, and now we're ready to find contact. So what do we mean by contact in the first place, Austin? Sure. So being in contact really means just being in touch with the flies. And what that means in itself is knowing precisely where they are throughout the drift. Yeah. Um, We learn to read the contact on the cider. Then we can trust what the cider is showing us. You know, it shows us our depth. It shows us our speed. It shows us our angles, um, more things like that. Yeah. Right. So we want to find that contact and be in touch with the flies. I mean, it's a contact system. Lots of people refer to it now as contact nymphing. I like that. I like that. Right. Yeah, me too. And with that contact, then the guessing ends and Mm. the knowing well, begins. And knowing where our fly is, knowing where it's going next, being in control of all that happens when we have contact. 
Or if we were just in contact and now we back off a little bit, <laughs> we're going to talk a yeah. little bit more about slipping contact uh, a little bit later here. And as we pointed out many times already, contact nymphing isn't always about being all the way in contact all the time, mm. you know? Yeah. But yeah, we're looking for that contact so we know exactly where the nymphs are. And without the contact, you don't know anything. You really don't. Then you're flying blind again. Yeah, you're just guessing. You know, the contact is all visual too. Mm. It's about reading the cider. Um, contact brings the visual into the tight line game for us. You know, everyone loves dry flies because of that. You mm. can watch a fish come up Love and stick your dry off the surface. There's no guessing anymore. Yeah. Same thing with streamers. You can throw a streamer against the bank. You can watch that brown charge off and eat mm. it. You can also feel it right away. It's that big dramatic um, response to what you're doing. Uh, mm. We can get the same thing out of uh, a nymphing tactic by reading our cider. We can watch for that visual take. Yeah, that's a good point. With dries, you know where it is. It's easy to see. Uh, with streamers, often we're stripping well, fast enough and shallow enough that we can see it. But yeah. when we can't, uh, you still know where your streamer is because you just stripped it. You know, right. you just felt it. Right. It's a feel game, you know. And with this, this contact that we are talking about is not feel. It's visual. We're visually seeing that we are in contact by reading the cider. The cider is the key to all this. You said, see beyond the cider. Yeah. You're going to start out by looking at your cider to see if you're in contact. And then you're going to, I say, see beyond the cider. Look beyond it. Um, look into the water where you know your nymph is now. If right. you have contact on a cider, you don't have to say, well, well, here's where I think my nymph is. No. Contact on the cider points directly to your nymph. That's where it is. So fish it, you know, see past that cider. Yeah. That's a good point. I think uh, early on, too, sometimes we can think our nymphs are in one place. And in reality, it turns out they're actually two feet over in another column. Oh, yeah. So, you know, yeah. Look beyond the cider, watch to see where your nymphs enter, and then watch to see where they're tracking to and, and mm -hmm. see if it's all in a line, you know, like we've talked about before. So we're throwing around the word contact a lot. So why don't we touch on this? How do we know we're actually in contact? Mm. Yeah, we've said to learn to read the cider, but reading it means seeing what that cider's doing. Mm. Um, when it straightens out, that's the best thing to start with, really, I suppose. When the cider goes straight, instead of limp, um, instead of curved, or kind of with slack, mm -hmm. when it straightens out, now it straightens out because it feels the load of the weighted fly or the load of the split shot, whatever the weight is underneath. It gained contact, and that's why it straightens out. Nothing else is really going to straighten it out. Right. And so now, all of a sudden, you can be sure with a straight cider, you can be sure that you have contact from your rod tip to your fly, to the split shot, whichever, to the weight. You can be sure that that's where your fly is. A straight cider points straight to your fly. Mm. What about in situations where we have like a bow in the cider? You know, it's not always straight. Mm. You know, there's kind of two ways to drift, right? Right on. I mean, too straight of a cider probably means you're pulling it too much. You're leading too much. Mm. We'll get into uh, how to lead the flies and try not to pull too much. We talk about slip and contact. But yeah, too straight, <laughs> too much tension on that cider is probably leading the flies too unnaturally, uh, too much downstream. Yeah. This bow, I mean, do you fish with a bow and a cider a good bit? It depends, you know. It depends on how fast the water is or how heavy my flies are. I find if I'm fishing... Um, you know, moderately paced ripples that uh, I have two lightly weighted flies all incorporate more of a bow more naturally into the cast. And uh, I think it also happens or lends itself to a bow a little bit more quickly than a, uh, a heavily weighted rig is because it's mm. 
not reaching the payload as fast. True. So there's there's trade-offs. I hear that. The heavier the fly is, well, the more that cider is going to want to straighten out. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, and if you fish with a, a single size 16 beadhead pheasant tail, tungsten bead, um, it's going to weigh about 15 centigrams. That's not really enough to straighten your cider out under most circumstances. Yeah. And you would have to really pull that fly probably unnaturally downstream right. to really straighten that cider out. So yeah. as we yeah, so as we talk about straightening the cider or looking for the straight cider, yeah, we want to make sure that we're understanding too, as you said, it's all conditional. It matters how heavy the fly is. Your leader design matters too. Mm. You know, and if you have a thicker leader versus a thinner leader, you're going to have more sag or less sag. And sag really is what that bow in the cider is. There's right. a little bit of sag there. Right. A lot of people focus on that bow of the cider. And that can be a really good thing. When you're looking for the bow, and let's say you're fishing lighter nymphs and you have that nice bow in the cider. Um, yeah. A cider with a little bit of sag or a little bit of bow or a little bit of mm, forgiveness, let's say it can be more reactive. And we're looking then for it to straighten out right away. Right on. That could be a fish hitting. Yeah. And then we can also use that bow in the cider to, well, if it straightens out too much, we realize, oh, I'm, I'm leading too much. Yeah. I need to let the river decide how yeah. fast I should be drifting. So you right. just kind of maintain that, maybe just maintain that same bow, that same, yeah. you know, the same look to the cider all the way through. Right. Once you find what you're looking for. Yeah, the bow is a, a pretty reactive uh, posture for your cider to be in. Ooh, I like that. Like you said, yeah. if, it's, uh, if it's too straight, you know, the visual aspect might be harder to see sometimes on a lighter take with lighter flies. Mm -hmm. But if you have a, a slight bow in the same situation, it's going to be a lot more obvious when yeah. something grabs hold of it. Yeah, there's so many different ways to do this. That's a great point, too. Um, you know, we can fish with light flies, heavy flies. We can fish with all kinds of different ciders and, and leaders. That's a good time, yeah, to talk about cider material. Just generally, thinner materials are better for seeing that bow. That's fair, mm. you know? Yeah. And softer materials are better for seeing that bow in the cider. And you can choose those things. If you really want to focus on that bow and trust it, well, then possibly fish thinner and softer materials for your cider. Um, but thinner and softer is worse, really, for tuck casting and for that deadly accuracy over not just the fly, but all yeah. the other elements that matter while sticking the landing. And we've talked about mm. that. Tuck casting and then sticking the landing are really key for setting up to the point where we're really going to start drifting. If you're using real thin materials and super focused on that bow, mm, you are not going to have as strong of a tuck cast. So you're not going to have as much authority over the way everything goes and how you set things up. Everything in fly fishing really is a trade-off, you know? Mm. So what kind of cider do you fish with? Yeah, I like a bit of a, a thicker cider uh, mm. for the reasons you just mentioned. Uh, the tuck cast power, the turnover power, um, the amount of authority and the amount of um, accuracy we get to keep on our side. I fish thinner ciders, mm -hmm. uh, especially if I'm fishing a thinner uh, leader in general. Yeah. Because then things just work better together. Um, but that's for different scenarios. If I'm going to go all around, I like to have a bit of a thicker cider, you know, 1X, 2X. Yeah, right um, on. Somewhere in that range. Yeah, I'll often add a piece of 2X Rio bicolor to the end of my standard cider. Mm, my standard cider is 12-pound amnesia and then 10-pound gold strand. Yeah, right. And those are, those are fairly thick. Again, lots of nice power there. And I can read that cider. But then I also kind of want to watch that watch for that bow 
And so I'll add a foot or 18 inches of 2X bicolor. Yeah. That's a good way to kind of have, <laughs> have the best of everything sometimes. <laughs> right. Now you're talking about fishing in a, a little thicker cider on average. And so do I. Because I'm not always real dialed in on just watching for that bow in the cider. Another way to really read contact is to look for this nervous cider concept. You know, mm. I call it a nervous cider because I, I think I heard George Daniel say nervous cider. Love that. Yeah, I'm not sure I've heard that term. I like it though. It makes sense. It's just kind of shaking or <laughs> uneasy, <laughs> a little nervous. You know, right, right. Um, and that's easier to see. I'd argue it's easier to see with stiffer materials. And I feel like I can see that nervousness settle down to signal then that I have the contact. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think that nervousness, especially, at least for me, is most apparent at the beginning of the drift mm. when we're first searching to find the contact. Because there's right a away. little bit of slack, too. Yeah, there's that little bit of slack. And the flies aren't really down deep yet. Mm. There's not a lot stabilizing them other than our rod tip yet. So all that um, is especially apparent right at the beginning. Ah, that's a great point. Tactical Fly Fisher was started in 2015 by fly fishing team USA angler Devin Olson with a mission to bring American anglers the techniques and gear that dominate the international competitive fly fishing scene. While you may have no desire to compete, you can still benefit from the same strategies which competitive anglers use to make them more successful on the water. Whether you want to buy a urinimping rod, a stillwater fly line, or just some hooks and beads to fill your fly box, we've got you covered. And our teaching materials will help you learn how to use whatever products fill up your cart. Head on over to tacticalflyfisher.com and use the code TFF10 to get 10% off flies, fly tying supplies, or terminal tackle. Putting together tight line and urinimping fundamentals is crucial, and so is carrying all the right fly patterns all the time. Fooling Mill offers a custom range of fly boxes with a tight line and urinimping angler in mind. The pocket box is perfect for the angler who likes to keep it fast and light, while the Tactical Max has a middle page and can hold up to 960 flies. With the Fooling Mill line of fly boxes, you're covered in every situation. To check out all seven custom fly boxes, head to foolingmill.com or ask for them at your local dealer. Hey, let's reiterate this. A lot of what we've done already in the previous skills with the tuck and then learning to lift and lead to recover slack sets up the kind of drift that we are really looking for. And in this case, it sets us up to find contact on the cider. Maybe we have that slight bow after finding contact. Maybe we're looking for that nervous cider. And whichever way, we're reading that cider to know what our flies are doing. Once we have the contact, once we can read the cider for, oh, yeah, there I have my contact, then we know that's what we're talking about. This is the point. With contact on the cider, we can trust what that cider is telling us about the flies. It's just the key to so much of what happens in this whole drift, the whole thing. Yeah, right. That's kind of the magic, isn't it? It is. So yeah, But you have to find the contact. That's why this is one of the essential skills. You have to be able to read the cider and know, oh, there I'm in contact. Or, well, no, I'm not in contact yet. There's too much bow. The cider is too nervous. Or I just know I'm not in contact. Well, however you are reading it, you need to be able to say, I'm in contact or I'm not. And then you choose, yeah. do I want to maintain that contact all the way through the drift? Or do I want to come in and out of contact? Right? I mean, we, we've talked about it a bunch. Yep. But let's really break yep. this down. Slipping contact. Sure. 
So like you said, in and out, um, there's some influence, but there's not too much. Um, yeah. You know, we let the flies do their own thing. Uh, and then we help them out so they don't stick to the bottom, essentially. Yeah. And that's guiding the flies, really. And that's what you mentioned earlier. But before we decide to slip out of the contact, we first have to find contact in the first place, right? right. You have to know where it is. Yeah. So slipping contact happens after we establish the initial mm, contact. Right. If you don't have contact, you're just guessing. Now, eventually, you get experienced enough that you're going to know where your contact is, even without finding it and being so deliberate about it. You know, there's so many subtle nuances to all this. And we are talking about some advanced stuff here. I mean, this isn't what you're going to do on day one, you know, but this is really where, uh, to me, every day I'm out there, I feel like I can get better. Slipping contact is something you can work the rest of your life on and not get it. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. You want to let the flies do their own thing. This idea that you can fish light nymphs and then just, you know, track their progress downstream indefinitely, uh, I think it's misleading. Um, Mm. Now, I have an article about tracking the flies versus guiding the flies. But I try to make the point that, well, think of it this way. If you open up your fly box and a nymph falls out, (laughs) right? I mean, because that happens to us, um, you know, that nymph, let's say it's a tungsten, you know, waltz worm, tungsten bead waltz worm, it's going to fall right right to the river bottom. Yeah. It's not going to take more than a second. Let's say you're in water up to your up to your waist. It's not going to take more than two seconds. I'll give you that. Two seconds yeah. to fall to the bottom. I don't care if it's a size 18. You know, it's still right. going to fall to the bottom in two seconds. It's done. It's on the river bottom. What keeps it off the river bottom when we're fishing it? It's tippet. You know, so it's what we do with our tippet that matters. <laughs> I've started to say it this way. Lead the tippet, don't lead the fly. You know, mm. try not to alter the fly, but just continue to lead your tippet into the right place. That's kind of like even more detailed with the slipping contact in and out. <laughs> I like that. All these kinds of things, maybe they're just mental gymnastics or little tricks we try to play <laughs> on ourselves, but they work too. That's why all of this stuff, as we addressed in the beginning, is just so much fun. Yeah. All right, so as we're doing this too, we want to be careful that we don't force the contact too much. I mean, if you're just learning this or if you're focusing on refining this contact skill, um, you don't want to be so obsessed with it that you start, well, overdoing it, right? You don't want to force the contact. Yeah, in some water types or situations, we do want to grab that contact right away. Um, So we can force contact by leading quickly. One of the situations where this is especially true is in really fast water, you know, really fast mm. riffles or pocket water where once those flies hit the water, they're going to want to boogie downstream and we better <laughs> stay ahead of them. Yeah. Um, otherwise, like we said earlier, you think your flies are in one place, but oh, set the hook. Oh, they just came out way over there. Yeah. Um, so you'll force contact more in faster water. I will. Uh, yeah. I think you have to. Because if you're sitting there waiting for flies to catch up or waiting for your cider to catch up to where you feel comfortable, the flies are gone. So it's like, it's better to err on the side of too much contact than less in faster water. Yeah, it is in my opinion. I'd agree with that. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, we also have to learn to recover that slack too, um, with subtlety. So we can just read the contact on the cider instead of only forcing it. Yeah, that's a good point, man. Good point. So we, you know, we're talking about seeing contact and reading beyond the cider, but how about the physical? Can we actually feel the flies, the, the contact? Can we feel that contact with the flies? Can you feel contact? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> I want to say short answer. Short answer is no. I don't think you can feel contact very well. 
Okay. Given average circumstances. Uh, we have to be careful here. We have to understand when we talk about contact, we're not saying contact the riverbed. Mm. There is another way to kind of feel things. And, and you can feel through the rod tip, right through the rod and into the cork and into your hand. You can feel, if you have enough weight, uh, you can feel tick to tick, 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 you know, on the bottom. <laughs> yep. You can touch that bottom. You can choose to ride that way. Next episode, we're going to talk about finding that strike zone and riding the strike zone instead of ticking the bottom. But there's plenty of times, too, when I decide that I want to touch and I want to tick the bottom. When I do that, and if I have enough weight, honestly, I'm going to tell you, that's like 40 centigrams. Yeah. Um, then I can feel it. And that's contact. That's a type of contact. Boy, that's not what we're talking about here. Right. We're talking about just being in touch with your flies, and you don't even need to feel it. You see it. Like you said earlier, this contact that we're talking about is very much visual. So can we feel it as well? Mm, usually not, right? And that's why seeing the cider is so important. And we're not confusing with touching the bottom. Yeah. All right, so think about this too. If you feel it, then you're going to see it too, right? Yeah. If, if, you're, yeah. if you're feeling the nymph tick, 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 you're also going to see the cider sort of twitch and, and hesitate, right? Yeah, definitely. So that riverbed contact is a different thing, but you're also going to see that too. Same with the fish striking. Mm-hmm. You know, if you feel that fish strike, you're going to see it too. Right. So I'm trying to emphasize the point, I guess, that this contact should be visual. That's what we should be relying on is the visual aspect of just reading our cider for contact. Yeah. But all right, let's say sometimes you can feel the load of the flies on your rod tip. Right. Uh, fishing at night, a lot of times um, you can't see what you're doing. <laughs> and I'll nymph at night. And Trevor and Josh and I have talked about this. We say that you can often feel the load of those nymphs on your rod tip, and you can get nice drifts. Uh, imagine doing it in the day and closing your eyes. You know, yeah. you can yeah. almost feel. Sometimes you really can feel uh, those flies kind of hesitating through the water. If the flies are heavy enough, and if they have enough material resistance, like if they mm-hmm. have hackle or a whole bunch of rubber legs, you can feel the water wanting to kind of hold them back, and now you're trying to pull them forward. So there's your contact. Right. You can feel it. But again, you need heavier flies and flies with some of that kind of resistance to them to really feel it. You know what I mean? I do know exactly what you mean. And I think that's a good point to make and differentiate between you know, feeling contact versus feeling the resistance of the flies and knowing where they're at through the drift. And, and that's all conditional based on the amount of weight like you just mentioned. Yeah, so we really have to read the cider for contact with our eyes. Yeah, bottom line, right? We're always going to see it. You know, if we feel it, we're going to see it first. Unless it's nighttime. <laughs> yeah, well, unless right. you're playing with the lights off, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, if something if something takes it and we feel it, it's got to go through the cider before it goes to our hands, right? So that yeah. always is going to be visual. Yeah, exactly. So uh, there's some troubles with this whole system, and that right there is one of them. Um, one of the biggest problems with the whole thing is sometimes we can't see the cider. Yeah, yeah. That is one of the biggest problems. And um, you know, one of the ways we can remedy that is by using thicker material, like I kind of mentioned earlier. That's another yeah. reason I like it. Um, brighter material. And then the other thing we can use is the backing barrel, right? Mm. Um, the backing barrel is indispensable to me. You know, in days where you just can't get out of the, the wrong light to see your cider, it seems like, yeah. the backing barrel is so easily found right away. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm almost in any condition for myself. You have it on there all the time. 
I do. I really don't take it off. Me too. Um, different sizes sometimes if I feel like changing it up, but there's always something attached. Um, yeah, I always have one on my cider too. Uh, the backing barrel is bright orange Dacron, uh, 20 pound, tied in a uni knot, um, and then clipped. Uh, I just leave one tag. You leave two tags or one? I used to leave two. Now I'm on the, the one. You just need one. I mean, yep. you can see it. It's Three like quarters of an inch. It's neon yep. orange, and you yeah. see it. And not only do you see it attached to your cider, and then that leads your eyes to the cider. That's great. Mm-hmm. But the backing barrel with that, let's say, half-inch tag, quarter-inch, half-inch, maybe even a full inch of a tag, it adds uh, like a third dimension or another dimension to your cider. That's a good way to put it. Often it will twitch or it will rotate, and boom, I'll set on that. Um, it's it's an indispensable tool for me, that yeah, backing yeah. barrel. You can find a full article on Trout Bitten about the backing barrel. I'll add this to that point too. In this age of fly fishing, we're mm. seeing uh, this whole idea of thin to win or the thinnest materials possible catches you the most amount of trout. And, mm, right. and there can be some negative thoughts maybe, well, I don't want to attach uh, something to my cider because it's going to cause drag or it's going to cause a, oh. <laughs> uh, some added weight. There's really no added weight There's uh, when it comes down to it. And the amount of help it lends me versus the amount of any sort of hurt that could be involved, mm-hmm. the help outweighs it by an infinite amount. I once weighed uh wet 20-pound Dacron. Did you? Yes, against the same length of uh, 1X Rio Bicolor. Okay. Now, the Rio Bicolor weighs one-third less. <laughs> but if we're talking, now that's fair. Yeah. Okay, so the Dacron weighs more. The wet Dacron weighs more. But if we're talking about at the most one inch of this backing barrel, right? Then it weighs what three inches of your Rio bicolor does. So if you <laughs> if you're worried about the sag, <laughs> then cast three inches less. You know, not yeah. not as far. <laughs> yeah, you know, three inches of your cider off, and then right. you can have your backing barrel back. Right. That's like you say. Some people will get worried about these small details, and heck, that's that's what we do. We get worried about a lot of small yeah. details. Right. But right. no, I mean that's one thing you can actually, huh? Show the stats on that kind of thing, you know? What are the mm-hmm. actual measurements? Well, I measured it. I weighed it one time. Right. Anyway, the backing barrel adds no significant weight. And like you said, what oh, the, what advantages it gives us is absolutely necessary to the way I fish anyway. Yeah, right on. The other problem I'll mention is that uh, it's just hard to literally learn what contact looks like. It can be. Yeah. You know? And to be sure of it. I'm still yeah. not sure. Lots of times. I mean, I was out today. And I don't know, I started out real strong and I, I, I caught some fish pretty quickly. And then for the last half hour, I couldn't get anything going. I don't mm. know what changed. I don't know if it was me or the fish. Um, and I, st- you know, I certainly was questioning, am I in contact? Should I be leading more? Should I be leading less? Yeah. yeah. It's hard to know. Anything else, Austin? I had a follow-up question about how do we know we're in contact, right? And we mm-hmm. talked about earlier the the straight line from the cider is a great way to know yeah. we're in contact. But in the context of a bowed cider, let's say we're we're making we're sticking the landing, and then we're going to go to finding contact, but we're not going to be going to a straight cider. We've got some light nymphs on, and we're going to start leading them a little bit, and we're gonna, we're tracking them downstream. We've got a bow in the cider the whole drift. How do we know we're in contact then? I think when we're looking at that bow. I think we're looking for whether it's sloppy <laughs> or kind of waving around too much. Mm. You can kind of say nervous or if it's stable. You mentioned yeah. before about a stable cider. Right. That's another thing we're looking for. 
We're looking for the bow. Great. We're looking for a nervous cider. Okay. We're looking for all of that to kind of settle down and become stable. These are very nuanced things. Right on. And it's hard to, I suppose it's hard to just talk about. It is, yeah. You know it when you see it. And when you see that bow sort of stabilize, you know when you're in contact. And maybe you feel a little bit. You also want to be seeing where your flies go in. And you're deciding how much slack you've entered with. You were sticking the landing, putting everything right where you wanted. So there's a series of expectations, really. Mm, okay. And you're expecting that bow to just sort of flatten out a little bit. It might not be complete. It's not going to go straight, let's say, on just a single light nymph. Yeah. It's not going to go straight. Yeah. But you're expecting that bow to flatten out a little bit, to straighten out just a little bit. When you get that, you got to trust it. You have to mm-hmm. know that that's it and now lead it through. Right on. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. That's a good answer for something that's hard to describe just out loud. And the more you do it, the more you figure it all out. Yeah. And then you, and then, then you realize you don't know. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You, you have to start over every day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there it is. That's number five of the Essential Tightline and Euronymphing Skills Series, Finding Contact. Remember that each of these podcast episodes is supported by a companion article on the Troutbitten website where I get into some of the details for each of these tactics that we didn't have time to cover here. The links to that skills series, along with links for other helpful and relevant Troutbitten articles, are in the show notes for this podcast. So the next skill in this series of nine is about locating the strike zone. And I'll say this, I fished with tightline tactics when I started nymphing. I followed the Joe Humphreys approach. But when I finally understood the concept of getting my flies in the strike zone and not necessarily right on the bottom, a whole new world opened up. The strike zone is our most common target for the nymphs, and locating that strike zone unlocks a whole lot of the mystery to this contact nymphing game. So look for that one, locating the strike zone in your Troutbitten podcast feed. There are nine episodes in this essential skill series, so subscribe to the Troutbitten podcast and follow along. Read us out, bud. All right. Remember, TroutBitten.com is a free resource for all anglers. With over 800 articles, there are stories, commentaries, tactics, tips, and more. Find what you like through the top menu and through the search page. Navigate by way of the categories and the tags, too. Thank you for listening to the TroutBitten Podcast. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment, because that really does help us out. Until next time, friends, fish hard, enjoy the day, and find your life on the water.